Welcome to the First Intuition Student Podcast. On this episode, we talk about benchmarking, what it is, how you can get benchmarking information, and how you could relate it to your studies. We recorded the session in front of a live Zoom audience, and if you'd like to join, we've put a link for it in our show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the First Intuition Student Forum podcast. My name is Ben Borman, and I'm joined this evening by my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Good evening, David. Hi there, Ben. I'm pleased to say that I'm not being voiced by artificial intelligence this week as we were last week. So it's back to normal. How has your week been, Ben? Well, I don't know if regular listeners have done this, but I have certainly consulted ChatGPT at least three times this week. Um, I did it when we were talking about what could we call this evening session. And I got a really nice heart emoji from Dave and some colleagues in our marketing team when I referenced the fact I'd used ChatGPT to come up with it. I've used it in the classroom setting with some students this week. I got it to demonstrate to them how they could ask for some management accounting quiz questions if they were running out of inspiration studying for their level four management accounting exams. And I've also used it to do a template for an email I was sending around to all of our, our team with regards to some training that I wanted them to do and thought, I wonder how ChatGPT would phrase things. All of those have required an element of editing but I'm really grateful for last week's session because I think it really did just open my eyes again to some of the potential that's out there. Yeah, I, I loved last week and looking at those artificial intelligence tools that are out there. On the fair, on the one hand, you think that's amazingly clever and it's going to take our jobs away, and then on the other hand, you think actually it's not really that clever but it's saving me bags of time doing things that would ordinarily take me quite a long time that don't really add value. So from your perspective, writing that email, actually crafting a lot of the nuts and bolts of it really doesn't add value. Where you said making some edits, adding the personal touch to make sure that it comes from you, that you're using the right tone of voice, that's the bit that adds value. So uh, that's where I see us using it is that blend of we can bring the human element, but a machine can do the stuff that we don't want to do. That's right, Dave. And it's really reassuring, isn't it, that we can add further to it. I think that really does confirm to me we have got a role still to play and will continue to have. Our higher level perception, our higher level knowledge can really fine tune, as you say, the basics that we can generate from the computer. How's your week been? My week's been good. I've been just about i think we've finished seeing the new wave of school leavers joining our classes which has been great to see over the next week or so we start welcoming the new wave of our level seven apprentices so they will be starting in classes over the next kind of two or three weeks so they could be people that have been to university people that have completed aat um there are one or two that are going straight in after doing a levels but we don't tend to see a huge number of people coming in there so really exciting to see those people and i think by mid-october i think all of our autumn intake is enrolled in classes and studying for exams and then there's a, a moment for a sigh of relief. But then we have to kind of start making sure students are on track with their study planners. And before yep. we know, we'll be coming up to their first their first examinations. 
Absolutely, Ben. Absolutely. Something else that's happened this week, and I was going to mention it because I think you were probably there in person. Did you go to the football at the weekend where there was quite a controversial refereeing decision and the video assistant referee and you were there in the flesh watching the match, were you? I, I did go to that game. So that was the Tottenham Liverpool game. My father-in-law is a Tottenham season ticket holder. He happens to be out of the country at the moment. So I inherited his season ticket for the game. So I, I went down there. Uh, as you know, I'm a Derby County fan. So I, I was supporting Spurs on behalf of my father-in-law rather than as a Spurs fan myself. To be honest, in the stadium, I didn't know about the VAR controversy. As far as I was concerned, a goal had been ruled out for offside. It was at the opposite end of the pitch to me. I'm, I was behind the goal, so I didn't see, you know, I didn't have a kind of a bird's eye view of where the player was, where the defenders were and things like that. So as far as I was concerned, there was no controversy there until I started reading, you know, reports of the match after I finished the game. But it was a brilliant finish to the game, Ben. It was it was very, very exciting, but we're obviously now steeped in controversy and it keeps developing day by day this week. Um, interesting, we've just been talking and last week's episode was about artificial intelligence. And although technology was at play here, I think by everybody's acknowledgement, the technology wasn't at fault. It was the human error of interpreting the technology at the time. So that comes almost full circle from what we're yeah, talking yeah. about. There is still obviously the risk if you're asking people to interpret what a technological or a computer screen is telling them, they're still potentially going to make a mistake. Absolutely. But from the transcript of the audio that I read yesterday and this was the audio between the people running the VAR and the the referee the people running the FAR thought they were judging that something was given as onside and the goal should be allowed and so they looked at it and said yes it's onside everything's okay go with your original decision when what they were actually asking was that the goal has been disallowed can you confirm that it should be disallowed? And they should have said, no, your decision is wrong. And it was the question that was being asked of the VAR people that they were answering the wrong question. And that it was just a communication error. And, and when you looked at that, I just thought, that's horrendous. There's got to be a better way. And to me, it, a lot of people are criticising the technology in the way that we'll always criticise technology. But to me, the, the, the real criticism is the communication between the referee and the, uh, and the VAR officials. If the referee would have said, can you confirm that this was onside or can you confirm that the offside decision is correct? And then they answered back, I can confirm the offside decision is incorrect. That wouldn't have happened. And it's that communication. I think some of the language that's used and listening to the transcript, the language sounds really informal. Like, oh, yeah, mate, I think that's right. Oh, can you show me the lines now? And there's got to be a bit more formal language that's used, you no know, process that's followed. And as a lot of people have been saying over the weekend, why can't we hear it as fans? We hear it in cricket. We hear it in rugby. We hear it in American football, sports that I know, watch and love. Why can't we do it in football? Why can't the, the VAR officials go through that process of explaining what they're seeing and the decision they're giving? I think they do that and it removes issues like that. I heard it on the radio this morning and it is an incredibly painful listen. 
obviously listening retrospectively with the awareness of the fact that the decision was wrong and the moment that they realize in real time that they've given the wrong decision but by that point it's too late the football match has continued and they can't now bring it back and and change things you're listening to this probably as an accountancy student and thinking what the heck are Ben and Dave talking about but I think there were two very important lessons that I would say we could relate to all of our students Dave you hit the nail on the head with the fact that the person answering the question didn't understand the question that they were being asked and that's one of the big mistakes we see time in time out with students in an exam setting isn't it that they misread the requirement and so they answer the question they think they have been set as opposed to the one they should be answering so just a reminder for everybody one of the elementary keys to a successful exam pass is to make sure you have fully read understood and more importantly are then answering the requirement that's been set for you by the examiner the second one, and I think this is more a workplace thing, to be honest, you were exactly right, Dave, in how that demonstrates poor communication, terrible communication between the people involved. And when I've listened to it on the radio this morning, you can hear multiple voices and it just gets very confusing. There is lots of noise and background distortion between fundamentally a communication that should be between two people, the referee on the pitch and the person who's in the VAR box looking at the computer screen and other people get involved. And it's very hard to overhear this kind of dialogue between the two people. And we talk about that a lot. We talk about that in our impact skills program, thinking about to when we had John on. It would be really interesting to hear John's views on this mm -hmm. as somebody that does um, act as a, a referee and official in football matches very, very regularly. But we talk a lot to our apprentices about the importance of communication and making it clear that we get the message, the answer and the question communicated effectively. So I think big takeaways, actually, for all of us from what is a real life example situation that's going on in the news this week. So we've got a topic for this evening. Shall we introduce the topic to get going? We are talking this evening about benchmarking. So I suppose a good starting point, Dave, would be for you maybe to give us a quick overview, a snapshot of what you would explain a benchmark and a benchmarking process to be. Thanks, Ben. So benchmarking in its simplest kind of form is taking something you do and comparing it with something else. That's something else we would refer to as our benchmark. So it could be your comparing the revenue that your business makes to try and work out if that revenue is good or bad. And you need something to compare against. It might be you're looking at profitability. It could be you're looking at processes that your business undertakes. So manufacturing processes, and you might want to work out how well you're actually performing in those processes. And you want to compare against something or someone else. So I keep saying someone or something else, and we'll look at different methods that we can use to benchmark. But benchmark is just looking at how we're getting on against some kind of target. So I suppose we would categorise this as an element of performance management. And I think that's where we see it come up most in the exam syllabuses. 
But this is really about looking at our level of performance compared to something else that gives us a an indicator, a barometer of how we are currently performing. Yeah, and we see benchmarking not just in those management accounting papers that you associate me with. We see it in financial accounting papers. We see it in auditing papers. We see it in the whole raft of of papers we teach throughout all accounting qualifications. And I know that you will ask students to benchmark, but you won't call it benchmarking. So if you ask a student, say, how well has this business performed? And they've got the, the income statement in front of them. They might tell you, that the business has made a profit margin of 20%. And your first question will be, is that good or bad? And they'll say, I don't know. And they'll say, well, what do you need to work out if it's good or bad? Well, I need to compare it against something. I need a benchmark. Okay, whether that benchmark is looking at last year's figures or whatever it is, gives you some kind of comparison. I know in auditing, Ben, something you know and love, all auditors are always benchmarking. They're always doing that analytical review where they're looking at what does this year's financial statements look like? How has that moved from last year? And what is the reason behind it? Is there a reason for it? Because sometimes where there are differences from our performance this year to last year, that could indicate some kind of misstatement in the financial statements that we as auditors need to report on. So benchmarking we see absolutely everywhere. Exactly right. We look at analytical review. We look for things. Are they as we would expect them to be? Or actually, is the result an unusual one, in which case we would need to go and investigate it further? I've had an example today. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, a lot of organisations are looking much more closely at their environmental credentials it's something I'd be keen to explore on an upcoming episode of the Forum podcast. But we have established in uh, my part of the world of First Intuition, a sustainability committee. And we actually met as a group for the first time last week. And one of the things we were talking about was the energy usage in our buildings. And whether you're doing it for environmental reasons or you're doing it for economic reasons, I'm sure a number of people listening to this are maybe a bit more aware of how much energy they are using at home. They might even have one of those smart meters that kind of tracks their energy usage. And I have to admit, we didn't have or I certainly didn't have any data that I could share with our sustainability group. So actually, I've asked the guys back in the centres this week and I've got the information through and I was told today how many kilowatts of energy we used as a business or in Cambridge Centre last year. But that number means absolutely nothing to me. I can tell you the number. I'm not going to share it now because I can't remember it off the top of my head. But I got the number through and thought, well, that's great. But what does that mean? Is that good? Is that bad? Is it way, way more than we would expect? I've got nothing to compare it to. And I guess that is an element of benchmarking. We now need to go and benchmark that against something else. And so I think actually environmental benchmarking is going to be something that if you're not already aware of it with your organizations, your employers or your own selves is something that we're going to be doing and seeing much more of in the coming months and years. I agree, Ben. It's it, it's definitely something people are looking at with the objective of net zero over the next few years. 
we have got that benchmark of we want to get to zero, but what elements of our business are we using more carbon in? Are we maybe be able to to claw carbon back from to get to that net zero? And which ones can we work on? How does that compare to what other people are doing? So watch this space. We might be running that as a future podcast episode, but I hope I can get some meaningful information that can compare our energy usage to some benchmarks. So let's talk about the different places we could go to establish a benchmark. The first place we've got is what you called earlier an internal benchmark. Dave, would you like to talk to us about what an internal benchmark might mean? Well, I think, first of all, Ben, if we look at if this was an exam question and they were asking us to write about or to discuss benchmarking, we'd first of all give an introduction about what benchmark is, that idea of making a comparison to evaluate performance. And then we'd say there are various different methods of benchmarking we could use. And we talk about internal benchmarking, competitive benchmarking, functional benchmarking. And if I'm in an exam, I want a sentence for each of those and then examples. So we're going to go through exam style, okay, each of those, what they mean, and an example. So first of all, internal benchmarking. Now, internal benchmarking is when you compare your performance with yourself. So you're comparing how have I performed okay, versus maybe another branch of what you do or maybe against the prior year. So it could be I'm going to compare my profitability. I made that lovely profit margin of 20%. Last year, I made a profit margin of 19%. So my profit margin has improved from 19 to 20%. I make that comparison. I can see that I've improved. I'm a better business now in terms of generating profit than I was last year. You could benchmark against another division or another function of your own business. So you could say, I'm making 20% in the UK. Let's compare that against our German operation that's making a profit margin of 22%. That's not so good. It shows that we're lagging behind the German business because they're making a higher profit margin on their sales than we're making on our sales in the UK. So benchmark is comparing ourselves with ourselves. Now, Ben, are there any issues, do you think, if you are only going to make those comparisons against your own performance? Well, I, I was thinking of potentially advantages and disadvantages. And I think before I share with you what I would say is some of the drawbacks I was thinking as you were speaking there. I think there are some potential positives from that internal aspect of benchmarking. If you are benchmarking against previous years, you have got verified data that is relevant to your organization. So I presume one of the advantages of that is, at least I can say, we were doing this, so this is possible because it was us and it was in hopefully a similar setting than we find ourselves now. Now, the downside of that one is we know the world changes. So just because we did it that way last year doesn't necessarily mean we can expect that to be our benchmark target for this year. And I suppose the bigger problem with that historic benchmarking is something that um, we call paradigm blindness is the term. I'm going to big up my colleague, Alex. Those of you in Cambridge know Alex Griffiths. He's been on the podcast before and we will certainly have him back again. But he's our resident management expert. And he mentioned paradigm blindness as being the concept that just because we've done it that way in the past doesn't necessarily mean that should be our target for doing it in the future. We get set in a bit of a stuck in our ways 
and we are really only monitoring ourselves against our previous performance. That includes all of the previous failings that we've had as a business, as an organization, or if we were doing it individually, that's not a great track record. If I have failed every exam I've sat so far and I use that as my benchmark, that's not actually going to improve my performance drastically in the future. I, I like that, Ben. And right now, I use the example of Wilco's. If you were managing the, the Cambridge branch of Wilco six months ago, you could have been sitting there going, my profitability is amazing because I'm better than every other branch in the country. Now, we know that that was a failing business. So all you're doing is you're comparing a business that was rubbish with another part of your business that was just a bit more rubbish. And you're saying you're brilliant. So it's something that you do need to be really careful with. But it's it's easy to do. It's the easiest form of benchmarking because you've got all of the data. If I'm a student and I want to improve my personal performance in my exams, I could use internal benchmarking. I could do a series of 20 questions tonight and I could compare against my performance in 20 questions a week ago. And that's internal benchmarking. And if I'm getting better, I know I'm getting better because my performance now is better than my performance a week ago. But one of the weaknesses of that is that improvement doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to pass the exam. If you've got three out of 20 today and a week later, you've got four out of 20, there is definitely improvement. But if you're improving at a rate of one mark a week, have you got enough weeks until you take your exam to get yourself up to that pass mark? So that would be my concern if you're purely looking at internal benchmarking. Okay, So sometimes it's better to look wider than that to get a broader picture of how well you're performing you know, overall in the marketplace. That's a, a really interesting observation. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, do you know what? That's quite often how we report student progress. For our classroom students, we traditionally do a student progress report and we will probably have a few touch points as we go through. There's usually a baseline test, a progress test, maybe once they finished a tuition element of the course and they will submit a mock and we will get it marked. And then there's maybe another one before they start revision that is submitted and scored and we give them a mark. And then there's another one at the end of the revision phase that's submitted and we give them a mark. And we would normally see a progression through them. Um, I think me and you have talked about this before, but we would normally expect on a revision class, somebody's score, if we're looking at a percentage score, to probably go up by anywhere between five to 10% from where they were at the start of the revision to the end. That's great. But what you were saying really resonated. If you start at 30 percent. Revision, you could possibly get your score up to 40 percent by that increment of adding 10 percent on. But if your pass mark in the exam is 50 percent, you're still going to fall short. So even if you're tracking your progress and it's improving, you need to make sure that you know what the target is for you to be able to pass the exam. Agreed, Ben. Agreed. So that's internal benchmarking. Now, our second form of benchmarking is competitive benchmarking, where instead of comparing yourself against yourself, you're comparing against your competitors. So it might be the case that I think my profitability of 20% margins brilliant 
But until I compare against other people that do the same things as me, I'm not sure if I'm actually running my business well or not. So what I'd like to be able to do is compare my performance with the performance of other people that do the same thing. And if they're all making margins at 15% and I'm making 20% margin, I know that I'm running a better business than those people at 15%. So the competitive benchmark is simply that, comparing what you do against your competitors. Now, can you see any problems, Ben, in being able to benchmark against your competitors? Well, I would say the single biggest problem is those competitors are going to be highly unlikely to email you the information if you requested it, because by definition, they want to maintain their competitive advantage. And so they're not going to naturally give you the information you would need to do a like for like comparison with them. So my biggest concern is how are we going to get the information that we can reliably use to benchmark against a competitor? So if I phone up Starbucks tomorrow and say, hi there, Jimmy Starbuck, um, I'm calling from Costa. Now, we're making a 30% margin on our flat whites. I just want to know what margin you make and what your cost breakdown is, because I want to know if we're doing a good job or not. Could you just email them across to me? You're telling me that Jimmy Starbuck is not going to say yes. I would be highly doubtful. And it also does open up another point that actually... Governments don't like businesses having too much shared information because it can come across as anti-competitive. They might be seen as actually all agreeing to do exactly the same thing, which actually reduces the level of competition and choice within the marketplace. So I think that's quite a problematic area to be in. Where do you think businesses go to get that competition information, Dave? Oh, Ben, thanks for asking. There are so many different ways that you can do it. So first of all, for every single business in the UK, Companies House is our friend. So anyone that hasn't spent time on the Companies House website, go there right now and start looking at your favorite companies, download their accounts, and you will be there all night if you're anything like me. So you can get financial information from loads and loads of businesses. And once you've got those financial statements, you can work out margins, you can work out return on capital employed, you can look at asset turnover, you can look at their receivables periods, all of those fantastic ratios that Ben spends every waking moment of his life thinking about, you can calculate for any competitor that you think of. You can even do th those calculations for people that aren't your competitors just for the fun of it to see how you stack up against other types of business. But all of that information is historic. All of it is information that's been published. It may have been sitting on company's house for six months. And then at that point, it may well, it is the result from the 12 months preceding that. So you look at stuff that's really out of date. So what businesses will try and do is they will try and benchmark other things with their competitors. So finances, they can kind of do a bit of. There are some trade organisations that receive information from lots and lots of people in the same industry that will then aggregate that information and will publish it anonymously so you can't identify who people are. So you've got benchmarks. So there are some trade organisations that are really, really good at that. I know in the farming industry, it, it's really common to get that information from various different farms. But something that I think is amazing is kind of the almost the corporate espionage that goes on. 
where people are desperate to find out about other people's products. Now, sometimes that happens because you recruit someone from a competitor, they come on board and they tell you everything that that competitor is doing and the way they carry out business. Now, obviously, if there are protected trade secrets, you can't disclose those. But some business processes are, are not patented. And it's it's perfectly reasonable to expect someone to share those that kind of information. One thing that I do know is that every single car company in the world is buying a model of every other car that's being produced by any manufacturer. So if you're Ford right now and Nissan release a new car, those people at Ford will buy that car. They will rip it to pieces and they will find out how it's built, what what new technology is in it, how have they designed various different elements of it to see if there is anything that they could, shall we say, draw inspiration from when it comes to creating their new model. Now, I don't know you know, that Ford definitely do this, but I think they would be negligent if they're not doing it. And my expectation is that in every industry where someone does something new or releases something new, everyone else in that industry is going to look at it and say, right, is that something that we should be doing? And we know this because we see so many products that look similar. You know, why is it that all mobile phones are the same kind of dimension? It's because one person did it, everyone else looked at it and said, actually, that's a sensible way to put together a phone. And then all phones pretty much follow that mould. Um, I remember when I was working in practice and we used to be able to access data and there were businesses that would effectively sell batches of data that you could use for comparison purposes. I was in the office today and I was chatting to Louisa. So our guest on last week's podcast, and she was saying how great the podcast was last week. And I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to last week's episode. And she asked me what we were talking about today. And I said benchmarking. And she said, that's really interesting, Ben. Lots of the software packages now, the accounting software packages are actually looking to allow people to tap into additional data sets to be able to compare their data to. So I presume what they're going to do is say, look, if you will sign an agreement with us, we will collate your data. They won't do it for individual companies. They can't break confidentiality. But I presume the software package would know our software is being used by a thousand businesses that run coaches in the UK, if all of those have ticked a box, and it might be in the license agreement, even in the small print before you know you're sharing your data, and they will then collate that and say, if you are now a coach company, we can give you a comparative set of data that you can use for these businesses within the last 12 months. I love that. And I think that that's something that you're going to see when you when you're buying a piece of software. Say you're buying a new accounting package, they're going to sell it as we have got expert analytics in your industry, and by buying that software, you're then giving them access to your data so they can further give other data to share with other people. So it's kind of a virtuous circle. Um, and you're absolutely right; those kind of data firewalls are things that they're going to need to be very, very careful of. But I, I can see that giving people really, really good real-time management information, and those people that don't want the analytics won't be able to opt in because they won't want to tick the terms and conditions to say that they're happy to share that information. So I think that's a really clever idea. But Ben, is there a way that that as students 
we can use competitive benchmarking. So besides writing an amazing answer in an exam and using Louise's examples, um, can we take inspiration from competitive benchmarking to help improve our marks and exams? It's something I've been, as a tutor, potentially a bit nervous about, if I'm honest with you. I would hate a student to feel they were being directly compared to another student. But I think I need to get over that fear. And increasingly, when I talk about this in classes, students seem much more comfortable with it than I initially thought. Because like it or not, the exam world is competitive. You are sitting an exam, and I don't like to say against other people, but ultimately, we know that so many people will go on and pass an exam, but also there will be a number of people that fail an exam. So something I've done, and I've started doing it more readily, we run ACCA question-based days. So it's effectively where students come in and do a mock exam under exam conditions with us. We mark it, we give them a debrief and some feedback. And what I've now put into the feedback is we have got maybe 30 students in the group all sitting the same exam, all anonymized. But our software on FI Learn can give us a lovely graphical readout of. So this question was score 30 marks in total. And we can do a bar chart that shows how many students in the group of 30 scored 0 to 5 marks how many scored 5 to 10, 10 to 15, and so on. And students actually really like that. They like to be able to place themselves within a cohort of students. So they will know, actually, although I only got 18 out of 30, I can see that I was still in the top 50% within the class. Is, is that something you've you've explored before with groups of students, Dave, actually giving them uh, where do they fit within the cohort? I'm always really nervous about doing that because I I do I do worry that if you've got people that are top of the class, they'll become complacent. And if you've got people that are, are placed say, in the bottom bottom quartile, are they actually going to get more depressed? And more despondent if they can see that more than half of their fellow students are, are scoring marks that are higher than them. So it's something that I always find quite difficult. But I, I think that competitive benchmarking, you're absolutely right. The other people doing the exams are your competition. But you can learn things from your competition. In business, you want to learn things from your competition. You want to find out what your competitors do well so that you can make sure that you do things at least that well. And you want to find out where their weaknesses are so that you can exploit those weaknesses and do better than them in those weak areas. So if I'm a student, what I would like to do is find out what are those students that are doing really well? How are they achieving that? And that's where... I would I like to see people working in study groups where in a study group I'm looking at a group of three students one of them's done really well in a particular question say on income tax and the two other people in that study group are then saying well how did you achieve those marks let me have a look at your answer can I see how you approached it and we start learning things from best practice that student that maybe got a really high mark is then hearing, oh, I didn't get that because I'd forgotten about the personal allowance or you know, I, I hadn't applied the higher rate tax bands correctly. Now, although the student got that right, 
that emphasizes in your mind, this is where people are making mistakes in the exam. I need to make sure that I'm really switched on so I don't actually slip up in the exam and forget those kind of things. So it helps both ways. And the reality is most students will have a weak area. And if you can team up with a group of people, the chances are that they've got that stronger area. Now, another thing I would look at then is, although you're not directly competing because you're not doing the exam, you could quite easily put an answer together to a question. And, and I know that I will put together an answer in a certain way and you will put together an answer in a different way for the same question. And both of us are going to be different from the model solution. You know, unless the question is a very, very simple, can you calculate income tax on a salary of £10,000? It's going to be different. And you can learn things from what a tutor does. So, you know, could I see then what your what your answer to this question would look like? Oh, this is how I would structure it. How did you come about that answer? Well, I broke the question down into these four key points and I've addressed each of these four key points here. Oh, how did you generate the ideas for this? Well, first of all, I put down the definition and then I thought about, well, where are the applications that I've seen? Okay, just giving you an idea of an approach. So competitive benchmarking is possible, but it's just something to um, to be a little bit careful with and treat someone that's got a better mark with you as a massive, massive source of knowledge and help. The other thing that you can do in terms of competitive benchmarking is you can look at people that have been successful in the past. So who has achieved in the past? And the people that have achieved in the past are usually awarded prizes. So AAT, ACCA, they will award prizes to people that score high marks in the exam. Now, when they award these prizes, they normally do a profile of them and they'll interview them. And you'll see interviews on their websites or on social media. And um, so what you can do is you can look up those prize winners. So look up to ACCA prize winner for strategic business leader. You'll find an article about that person. Read that article. And as I said to you, Ben, success leaves breadcrumbs. So follow those breadcrumbs. That person that's successful will tell you that this was what I did to study to achieve that mark. This is how many questions I did. This is the work that I did. This is the strategy that I put in place. And if you know it was good enough to win a prize two years ago, it's going to be good enough to score a very, very good mark this year. So look for those kind of things. The other thing that I, I've used before, and this is kind of on the the cusp of, is it competitive benchmarking or is it what we talk about in a minute with functional benchmarking? I've done some research where I've looked at what are the traits that high scoring students have in order to achieve high marks in exams. Now, this is not accounting exams. This is just kind of high school exams, GCSEs, A-levels, where they've studied vast amounts of students to assess what is it that separates the top scoring students from the students that don't score as high. And people automatically think it's IQ and it's not IQ. People then think it's about the amount of work that people do. It's not about the amount of work that people do. The clearest correlation between success and stuff that people have or do is the number of practice exam questions that have been undertaken. There is a huge link between people achieving high marks and people doing lots of exam question practice. Okay, And it's not always the people that spend the most time studying. So it's really interesting to see things like that. But again, it's looking at people that are doing exams and what can I learn from them? Maybe not directly your competitors, but people that are doing exams and achieving high marks. 
So there's some work for people. The information, the data is out there. You're going to have to go and hunt it down. I would suggest you can go and Google search for examiner articles. Who's better to tell us than what they see from the highest performing students than the examiners that are the ones that ultimately award those prizes? Examiner articles are great at telling us what the great students did and what the students that failed didn't do. So go and look at those. The ICAW are brilliant at this now. So for their final exam, the case study exam, for the last three sittings, they have published two real student answers. They're anonymized, so you don't know who the students are, but they are real scripts that were written by real students under exam conditions, and they are both indicative of passes. But they really do give a student that's sitting the exam perspective of that's what I needed to do to pass it. So go and look for those examiner articles and any released answers that the awarding bodies put out there. It is a competition. I know it's not nice to talk in those terms. But aside from direct competition, Dave, our last area of benchmarking is what you mentioned a moment ago, functional benchmarking. Would you like to just give us some perspective of what functional benchmarking might mean? Functional benchmarking looks at a a thing that you do and then ask the question, who is brilliant at doing that thing, regardless of who they do it for? And then looking at comparing yourself with them and maybe making improvements with them. And you see this all the time, Ben. You you see the product of functional benchmarking every single time you go online because Amazon are the world's best at selling stuff online. They've been the world's best for years. And everyone benchmarks their e-commerce site with Amazon. And if I were to ask you, Ben, if you go onto a website today and you think i want to buy something i will guarantee when you see the thing that you want to buy automatically your eyes and your mouse cursor will go to the right hand side of the screen and you're going to look for a yellow box to click because that's what amazon have taught us is the the best method to encourage people to click and buy every single website in the world that's any good follows that process if you ever go to a website that doesn't do that I get confused. What do you mean it's a red box and it's on the left-hand side? Red means I don't want to buy it. And the left-hand side is an area of the website that no one ever really uses because everything that's meaningful is on the right-hand side. So people have done that kind of benchmarking. And I've seen marketing experts talking about how to design your website. And the way that they do it is they get Amazon's website up because it's the best e-commerce website on the planet. And they say, you need to make it look like this. So they're benchmarking what does your website look like against the best in the world. So we see it every time that we go online. Businesses do it in all kinds of different ways. And because it's about best in class, you can get some kind of seemingly kind of quite strange matchups between people. And one that I know we always talk about in class, Ben, is um, Southwest Airlines in the US. They teamed up with the Formula One team to try and benchmark their processes. And Southwest Airlines, a big airline in the in the US, they recognized that in order to be profitable, they had to have their planes in the air for more of the time and on the tarmac for less of the time. So they needed to get their planes landed, parked, 
emptied, refueled, cleaned up, and then back in the air as quickly as possible. And they realized that the Formula One teams are the best in the world at getting a vehicle stopped, having a load of work done it, and then started as quickly as possible. So they looked at what do Formula One teams do? And Formula One teams have got individuals that have got very, very singular tasks. So they've got the lollipop man at the front and they've got one person that deals with the left front wheel, the other one that deals with the right front wheel, back left, back wheel, back left wheel, back right wheel. And they all work together and they started implementing similar processes into their plane. So when the plane emptied, you had someone that just went through and just cleared up all the rubbish. That was their only job is to walk through the plane, clear up all the rubbish. Someone came behind them and made sure that all the in-flight magazines were in the things behind, in the little pouches behind the cheeks. Someone outside, meanwhile, is refueling the plane as soon as it lands. Someone else is emptying the luggage and another person's trying to put the luggage on at the same time. And they turned the, the amount of time the plane was on the tarmac to a tiny tiny fraction of what it was before so really clever getting these kind of link ups and i think that formula one teams are the most benchmarked type of company because they are so good at so many things so i know that it's a hot topic at the moment but the high speed rail networks in the uk the the trains were designed alongside formula one cars because they said, well, we want to we want to be able to send trains super fast down bits of rail, but they've got to encounter corners and we want to make sure that the trains don't fall off the corners. Who's really good at sending stuff fast around corners without falling off? Formula One teams. So they benchmark that technology. I test drove an electric car last week, Ben, and that has got KERS technology which is directly lifted from Formula One cars to recycle kinetic energy, to store it in a battery and then release it later on. So this kind of functional benchmarking happens all the time. And it's it's something that if you can find the right benchmarking partner can work two ways because you can learn something from that company, but they can also learn something from you about the application of what they do. And I suppose from an individual student perspective, that's why myself and Dave quite often talk about sports, sports teams, sports personalities, because those guys are really good sources of tips with regards to dealing with motivation, dealing with preparing for an upcoming race event, that we can bring those reflections back and say that's not a million miles away from a student preparing for an exam. So what do those guys do to make sure they're in peak performance mode for the day of their match, the day of their race or whatever it is? If it's nerves, maybe we could look to, well, what do film stars do? What do television presenters do to overcome nerves before they go on stage to perform? There's lots of things we can do. And that's where we need to be ultra creative, I suppose, initially to think, right, well, first of all, what, what are my problems? Where do I need to improve? Where am I going to focus my attention? And then who deals with that stuff much better than I do? Mm-hmm. And I know you do lots of listening to podcasts, Dave, lots of reading of books, but there will be lots of people who want to share their success and how they got there with us. And that's really what me and you spend a lot of time doing, nicking other people's good ideas. And that's, I suppose, benchmarking. It is. And and as we said earlier, that is the breadcrumbs that people are leaving behind. Successful people leave their stories behind. I was at a, a dinner 
two weeks ago and the Olympic gymnast Beth Tweddle was the the speaker there and she talked about her final um, Olympic performance where she was at London Olympics and she won her, her Olympic medal which is what she'd been aiming for and I would expect when you are competing in what was going to be your final Olympics, your last ever chance to win an Olympic medal, that thing you've been aiming at for all of your professional life, I would expect to be incredibly nervous. And she wasn't nervous. And when she talked about it, she just said that I've, I've done that routine hundreds of times. I knew I could do that routine. Now, I wasn't worried about falling off the bar. I'd be petrified about falling off the bar. You know, I'd be scared witless going into that. But she'd done it so many times. By the time she went into the Olympic Games, it was just doing the routine again. And when you speak to students that are successful in the exams, they've done so much question practice. When they went in the exam, they just knew they were going to be successful. And I love it. There's so many parallels. You know, I, I love hearing about things like the, the British cycling team. And their their one percent rule, where it's can you improve your performance by one percent a day? Because if you can improve your performance by one percent a day, at the end of a year, you're thirty seven times better than you were at the start of the year. So it's one percent a day. Can you put in the work every day to be one percent better than the last day, than the day before you? And if you're starting at a point of I've got ten percent in my exam. Getting 1% better is getting, what, 0.1 marks better. So it's not a huge amount of difference every day, but it's about consistency and doing that thing again and again and again and again. And I think both of us know that to be successful in this game, it's about consistency. To be successful in accounting exams, it's about putting the work in on a regular basis. It's not about cramming for a day before the exam. It's about doing those little bits of work every day leading up to, you know, the months and weeks before an exam. We could keep going. We could keep going and going. In my head, I'm thinking, oh, a lot of students struggle to get organised with their studies. So who's a great benchmark to have for organisation? Well, go and look at businesses, organisations, individuals that are really organised. What tips do they use? Do they colour code things? Do they have very clear filing systems? You can benchmark absolutely anything. You just need to kind of think, what's my problem? Who out there is the best at solving it? Take to Google and go and say, who's the, the benchmark organization for time management? And they will come back with suggestions, I am sure. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the FI podcast with your hosts, Ben and Dave. As always, you can head over to the show notes where you can find the links and resources spoken about in today's episode. Please remember to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode and leave a rating and review.